Welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals who teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Andrew Fraser. And Andrew is a man of many talents. He is a rock climbing uh, specialist. Uh, he owns a gym in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, he is a survivor and he survived uh, Columbine, the Columbine shooting. Uh, so Andrew and I are going to talk about a number of things on this episode. Uh, specifically, uh, we are going to talk about the events that unfolded on that day. And we're going to talk about uh, why some of the, why some of these things happen, why uh, mass shootings happen from his perspective. Uh, he's going to share a little bit about some of the uh, things that have unfolded in the United States since Columbine, how the culture around guns has shifted, how the culture uh, around men and masculinity has shifted, uh, and the culture within high schools has shifted. So there's a ton of really incredible uh, information in here. Obviously, you know, Andrew's going to share his story of reliving uh, that that day, that horrific day. Uh, so if you are sensitive uh, to that, please be mindful. Um, and uh, it's just a reminder for everyone that's out there to reach out to people in your life that you know are struggling, that you know are going through a tough time, and to really be mindful of those around us um, compassionately. And, you know, this isn't, this episode really isn't meant to try and make some commentary around gun laws or a commentary around, uh, you know, what, what should be done from the Second Amendment Act. It is meant to really more bring awareness to the mental health of some of the children, some of the kids, some of the young boys and men that are in these environments and these school environments. So, uh, we're going to talk about a, a bunch of different perspectives, social awareness, social isolation, mental health. Uh, we're going to really run the gamut. And um, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, on a completely separate note, before, before I bring Andrew on, just a quick reminder, we do have a few spaces left open for the Man Talks weekend. So if you are wanting to be around a group of men who are committed to their own growth, uh, to their own expansion, who are working on embodying their own masculinity, uh, who are working on deepening their awareness and deepening their connection to uh, their sexual desires, their intimacy, and being able to interact with the feminine, uh, you know, evolving your relationships, evolving your career, finding a deeper sense of purpose, and most importantly, being able to work on the shadow of your psyche, the part of you that is holding you back and sabotaging you. I encourage you to go and check out the Men's Weekend uh, on ConnorBeaton.com or Mantalks.com. And if you have any questions, of course, Reach out to me at Man Talks on Instagram. Happy to answer any questions that you have about the men's weekend. It's a small group of guys, uh, an incredibly powerful, powerful work. So without any further delay, please welcome Andrew Fraser. Connor, thanks for the opportunity, man. It's like to be here. Yeah, Trey, so Traver, Bohm, Man Uncivilized, put us in touch. And I think he, he texted me and he was like, dude, you got to have this guy on your show. He's an incredible storyteller. And, uh, of course, with a name like Andrew Fraser, when I tried to like stalk you online, there are apparently way more Andrew Frasers than I expected. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm my yeah, no, <laughs> it's all good, but it, it does look like you've done some really, really amazing things. Um, you know, I got to kind of dig into some of the work that you've done and, uh, some of the work that you've done in the past and the work that you're doing, but um, before we dive into any of that, I'm going to start with a question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah. 
digging through the recesses of my my past, I saw a lot of opportunities, but uh, I think one certainly stands out above the rest. It's a Tuesday in 1999 in April. I'm still a junior in high school, and we had actually just come back from um, prom weekend, which obviously is the big deal in high school. So rolling back into school with classmates, high-fiving buddies, talking about you know the girls we made out with, et cetera. And um, at the time, I was actually in, in choir class um, because, again, tip to the, the young high school dudes, that's the place where you meet girls. <laughs> there was like... Um, 100, 100 kids in this class, the majority of which were girls. And uh, on this Tuesday, I was in the middle of a singing Ave Maria with this large choir group. And I was also known to sometimes skip out on this class, not to ditch, but to um, at least pop down to the cafeteria, go and uh, mingle with others and flirt, you know, get a drink of water and come back. I didn't that this day, but another student had, and then he he came back in the middle of class and he actually interrupted us mid-song, which was a huge faux pas with our, our strict choir teacher, Mr. Andres. And I'll never forget the words he said as he just cut us off um, mid mid melody and said, Mr. Andres, there's guys downstairs with guns. They're shooting people. And the the silence that fell over the room was just one of total disbelief. And are you kidding? Like this is a this is a terrible joke. Because seniors were known to pull pranks of various types and we thought maybe there's kids with squirt guns or something. But not just moments after this this guy uttered that statement, we heard uh, automatic gunfire and explosions and just what sounded like a war zone in the hallway outside of our classroom. And um, it turned into sheer pandemonium in that moment. And so the teacher told us to get down. We hid behind chairs. Um, the, the explosions, the gunfire grew louder. We saw the stampede of kids running down the hallway. And we realized that this perhaps was actually not the best place to, to camp out. And so I burst burst out the doors Joined the stampede of kids um, charging down the the hallway of the high school, hid briefly in the auditorium, heard the gunfire grow closer. So I left that hiding spot and ended up making my way um, out of the building amidst this chaos. I uh, got to a local park, hitched a ride home from a stranger, uh, and and then with a number of friends sat and watched on TV as this the scene unfolded in which, um, you know, via helicopter footage and, and, uh, news reporting, the Columbine high school shooting, um, began to, to unfold and watched, you know, classmates hanging out of the window of the building, others lying in their own blood on the sidewalk. And in this state of just total shock and disbelief, as though watching a, a movie realized, my life is never going to be the same. Like, I, I can't believe this is happening right now. So on that day, 12 students and a teacher lost their lives. Um, and then the two gunmen killed themselves. And the school effectively became a crime scene after that. Um, you know, this was near the end of our school year. And we didn't return. Uh, at the time, it was one of the largest school shootings that had happened in the United States. And kids ran out of their shoes. They you know, went home in their gym clothes, left their cars, their backpacks, their books. And so we didn't actually even finish our school year. And 
the the following year actually did return as a senior but before that a good chunk of the summer of 99 i spent um in therapy and attending too many funerals of teenagers uh, next door neighbors friends classmates and just you know shed tears until my tear ducts ran dry but then returning back to school as a senior um in in 2000 had a really hard time returning to a sense of normalcy because there were quite literally empty chairs in classrooms the the library where the scene of most of the carnage took place hadn't been reconstructed so it was literally just boarded up with plywood it was like a very cold hallway to walk down so trying to resume any sense of normalcy was kind of out of the question as this this memory was just so saturated in our environment. But I really did come to a couple of conclusions as a result of that. Uh, one was, you know, in the words of um, Helen Keller, security is mostly a superstition. Like the world doesn't feel safe anymore. Whether that's a, a high school, a post office or a public venue, I'm, I'm not sure that that safety is actually um, what I had formerly believed it to be. So I don't know how long I've got and I better get busy living. I'm going to go out and seize as much of life as I can. And secondly, I'm going to love hard. I just, I've seen the effects of, of hate at its dark, in its darkest forms. And with this time that I have left, I just don't have the bandwidth for anything petty, for any of this low vibration <laughs> for, for hate or anger. And I'm just going to, to love the hell out of people. So um, yeah, in the, in the, the two decades since, uh, my life has taken a pretty wild turn and, and brought me to many different countries of the world, experienced a lot of different adventures, um, and create a lot of extraordinary relationships based out of these, these two mentalities, um, of a sense of urgency to experience as much of life as I can and a sense of commitment to like, to caring for people and knowing that, uh, they might be going through something that I simply can't understand. And if I can meet and try to help heal them before something terrible, you know, befalls them or the world, then that's, that's the best use of my energy. Yeah. Well, wow, man. I mean, thank you so much for, for just sharing that, that story and that experience. And, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like. And, you know, I, I think I said before, I, before we sort of started recording that, you know, as a Canadian, I, you know, I remember, like, I remember the, the Columbine shooting. I remember, you know, where I, like I was in high school at that time too. I think you and I must be very similar age. And I just remember, you know, my buddies and myself sort of sitting around and being like, man, like what, what must that be like? Like what would happen? Like, what would that be like happening at our school? And, and the sort of like systemic questions and existential questions that, that come along with that. And, and, you know, I appreciate the bravery that it takes and the courage that it takes to just share the story, because I would imagine that you've you've had to do an immense amount of healing, which it sounds like you've done over the years to just be able to share that. And curious if you're if you're open to like digging into some of this in the, you know, what it was like afterwards um, and, and just kind of exploring some of that a little bit. Yeah, certainly. You know, I recall um, in months leading up to the Columbine shooting that there had actually, and it may have been as much as a year prior that there had been a, sh a shooting in a town in Oregon. 
And in that instance, one individual came into the school with a, a rifle or a shotgun and maybe fired off a couple of rounds before a number of football players or, or um, high school athletes actually tackled this kid and and literally saved the day and prevented him from killing others. And I, I was so moved by that story and thought, that is so badass that that these guys in a moment of potential fight or flight risk their own lives to save so many others. I only hope that I would be so courageous in a similar situation. And the truth is that when, um, when it all went down, I chose the flight response or, you know, I can't even say that I chose it. It just happened for as much as we might imagine our heroism in a, in a dire situation our limbic brain just just picks for us. Um, you, you don't actually know until the moment hits what you will do. And it's rarely comes from a place of uh, ration, reason or logic. You know, I ran ran for my life. And I think what I had to deal with for a long time after that was a very real sense of survivor's guilt. Not only the fact that I did survive um, while others were were shot, but the fact that I didn't do something. And there was a great amount of guilt that I carried with me. So, you know, Andrew, I think one of the things that you're, you're talking about there is such a common piece, which is this, you know, survivor's guilt. And I think, you know, for people that have been through any type of trauma there, you know, whether it's an acute trauma like this, or it's ongoing trauma, the one of the big challenges that they face, and and again, I think this is something that we sort of touched on before we, we sort of got on the show, is this idea that everyone handles trauma a little bit differently, and everyone handles these sort of extreme situations a little bit differently. And so I'm curious, you know, can you maybe map out um, from what you've seen your your friends go through and what you've witnessed yourself go through, you know, now that you're a couple of decades past it, uh, and kind of give listeners a sense of what people experience, um, whether it's survivor's guilt or how they start to deal with this type of trauma. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the, the aftermath of the shooting, I noticed, uh, in the months and years that followed that there were various responses and some were really disempowering and others were really proactive. So some, were were so deeply impacted by by the events, the trauma, the loss that they began to um, retreat pretty deeply, and oftentimes into like forms of self medication, uh, drug and alcohol abuse. Even years later, and would effectively use the tragedy as their cross to bear, their reason for um, all this this self destructive behavior. Say like. You just, you don't understand, man. Like you don't know what it was like to be at Columbine. This is why I drink. And the the unfortunate part of that was that um, so long as they hung their hat on that story, they never had to make a change in their lives. On the other side of the spectrum, I, I saw people who um, took up really s- strong forms of um, activism or evangelism where they maybe had a really renewed sense of faith, or they would take up a mission to advocate for gun control. So some people quite literally designed their lives around their their response to the tragedy. And for me personally, again, um, referring back to this survivor's guilt, you know, I, one, of my, one of the people lost was a, a next door neighbor, a brilliant young kid named um, Dan Mauser, who was only 15 years old. He was in the library at the time 
um, future valedictorian just studying for the next test and he got the rug ripped out from him. So what I was left with a lot um, in the wake of this, knowing that other young kids who had these, these grand lives ahead of them that did not have the opportunity to live them out, left me with a sense of, if I'm, if I'm racked with this sense of guilt that I made it out and they didn't, I better do something with this time that I have. And so it, for me, really created this sense of urgency to go out and to try to just experience as much of life as I could, almost on behalf of those who could not. So your response was sort of to like, take more life in. Is that, <laughs> I don't know if that's like an accurate way of putting it, but how, how would you sort of like summarize what your response was to it? Because it sounds like you've done some pretty incredible things since then. Yeah, I think it, it manifested in a number of ways from uh, moved, moved to a college town where I got into a lot of outdoor sports, but then post-college continued, uh, spent about seven years actually traveling the world. So I learned a number of languages, um, worked, studied, traveled and lived abroad um, in 30 plus countries and got into some um, extreme sports as well uh, from mountaineering, rock climbing to skydiving and even base jumping. So it, it was kind of paradoxical in that I actually took a lot of risks in the places that I traveled or the adventure pursuits that I got in into uh, almost as a response to this rude awakening that I had as a 17-year-old. But the, the irony was that in going out to chase a lot of life and try to experience it as viscerally as I could, I was, I was actually frequently putting myself in danger, uh, much to my mother's dismay. Yes, that sounds, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I mean, very, very, very different uh, stories, but I was doing similar things as a kid, like when I was like 18 or 19, and obviously I didn't have the background, but I remember when I bought my motorcycle and I was like 18 and my mom was like so concerned. She like took a life insurance policy out on me <laughs> and like made me sign it. And because uh, I had bought this like 1,000cc uh sports bike basically and so it's it's interesting to see how parents respond to our uh you know our reactions to what's happened in our past i'm I'm curious for you like what were you looking for because i think one of the big things in a lot of you know trauma survivors in depending you know however you want to word that depending on what the situation is they are often unconsciously or subconsciously like looking for something and so for you how did that manifest how did this show up yeah i can see i have sort of have two responses to that and again this just comes with the the benefit of um, hindsight and reflection and so in one sense um, what i was looking for i think Via, particularly via these extreme sports, was um, an opportunity to feel a sense of agency in dangerous situations, whereas previously I did not. When the shooting happened, life just exploded. Uh, I panicked and ran and was left with a real sense of powerlessness in the wake of that. Whereas if I were to be you know, scaling a huge peak in the, in the Alps or throwing myself out of an airplane, I had a sense of, of agency and control in an otherwise dangerous situation. And that with that came uh, a feeling of power that I have some kind of ownership in my life. As though, you know, I've, I've heard that some trauma survivors will actually go and recreate 
simulations of that trauma in one form or another so that they can effectively reauthor the the ending and the outcome that leaves them with a sense of control. And so I think, you know, aside from um, the the rush and the thrill and the excitement of a lot of these these sports, what it did provide me was a sense of of ownership and control in in the midst of danger. Now and the second yeah. part the, the second part that I would add to that is to almost reframe the question and and ask not only what was I looking for, but what was I running from? Because as I mentioned, I spent um, the better part of seven years uh, kind of wandering the globe from one seasonal pursuits to the next. And while I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, again, looking back, I can now see that so long as I was um, chasing the next sunset over the horizon, so long as as I was after the next adventure, as long as I had something big and exciting in my sights, I didn't really have to sit very still long enough to be with the pain of of my past. And, And that didn't actually really land until I finally returned home to Denver after all those years and, and sat still and got grounded in the yoga practice and uh, began to unpack a lot of this and, and realized that underneath all of this uh, exciting life and adventure, I was still really sad. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, a really powerful way of putting it. And, you know, after having worked with a lot of men who have experienced trauma in their past, whether it's, you know, family-based trauma and physical abuse or, you know, sexual abuse, it, it seems like they're, what you're describing is, is such a common theme of, of trying to recreate some of the sensations, not necessarily the same environment, but some of the, the, the same feelings or, or experience to try and regain a sense of control. And that's such a common thing. So how did you, how did you start to move through that? Cause it sounds like you, you know, explored the extreme sports and, and you, you know, you did some, some pretty incredible things. Like I, you know, I think <clears throat> I read somewhere that, that you, uh, wingsuit base jumped off of Iger, which like, I've seen wingsuit base jumping and every part of my nervous system when I watch that on YouTube is like, how do these guys do this? Like, it just seems like such a, an extreme thing to do. So, um, you know, first off, what drove you to, to wingsuit base jumping? And, and secondly, the bigger question is, is how did you start to move through that sort of adrenaline seeking, um, mechanism that was coming up because of what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, for the first part of your question, I, like many children had, had dreamed of flights ever since being a kid, but I would, mm. I would, what was interesting was that I actually experienced a lot of flight in my dreams as well. And was an uh, a very active dreamer from a young age and actually experienced a lot of lucid dreams. So over the course of a couple of decades, starting at about six years old, I would dream of flights. And in those dreams would first imagine myself as a tiny six-year-old crawling up onto the back of the couch, jumping off and flapping my arms clumsily to, to kind of float across onto the kitchen floor. Then later in junior high and high school would remember being outside of that same childhood home and could run down the street, launch, fly over a number of houses. And by college, I was with a, a real sense of control, clarity, and power sailing over the Grand Canyon and literally just, you know, in a, in a lucid dream, being so clear and conscious, I could feel the wind on my body. I understood aerodynamics and 
would always wake up feeling so empowered from those dreams. So it was sort of just embedded in my my psyche and my cells for for many years that that this was a dream um, that I wanted to bring into the waking world. And once given the opportunity uh, post college and had the the funding I got into skydiving, um, went quickly on the the track towards flying a wingsuit, which is a nylon fabric suit that provides more more lift and glide for a skydiver to not just fall flat towards the earth, but um, actually cruise across the surface of it. And then became very intrigued about um, combining these two worlds of of skydiving and mountaineering with the pinnacle goal of of climbing the Eiger, this big ominous mountain in Switzerland under my own power, and then launching from it and flying back down to the bottom to, to land in a, in a field of flowers. So that really was the, the, the realization of a huge dream of mine um, that took many years to, to actually accomplish and a lot of, a lot of discipline and training to do so. I mean, it sounds, it sounds amazing and like what a cool experience. I think a lot of people can resonate with, with that desire to, to fly and, you know, and just to have some of those kind of like, you know, peak experiences or whatever you'd like to call it. Um, there's other stories that I definitely want to dig into here and, and kind of like get a, a sense because it sounds like you've done some really amazing things. But, you know, I just I want to go back, if you're OK with that, and just kind of talk about the the bigger picture here and and not just like how people um, sort of dealt with this experience, but as someone that grew up in a school where this where this took place, I'm curious to get your insight into the you know the sort of like systemic issues that are that are causing this, because you know as of today, it's we're recording this on November twentieth, twenty first. As of today, there have been more mass shootings in the United States than there have been days. I think it's something like 369 mass shootings in 322 days or something like that, 323 days. You know, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, you know, did you see any signs of that? Is, is, it, is it something that's talked about in school? Like, how does this, from your perspective, start to arise w- within the education institutions in the United States? Yeah, is is um sad as it is to admit, um, at, at my time at Columbine, I definitely saw evidence of the, the high school hierarchy, you know, the popularity contests, the, the bullying and um, people being able to identify where they fit in the, in the ranks of that hierarchy. And for those two shooters, um, admittedly, they were, they were kind of outcasts in that system. They didn't fit the mold of like good looking, popular, uh, outgoing, gregarious, athletic, et cetera. And as a result, you know, not only those kids, but those like them did experience like the bullying, the getting shoved into lockers, the, the name calling, et cetera. And particularly at an impressionable time in life as a, as a teenager, when we're starting to feel this new sense of um, freedom from our parents, but now locating ourselves at the bottom of the, the, the social totem pole, like that's a really painful place to be. And so I think that fostered a lot of, a lot of deep pain, um, depression, anger, and resentment amongst, amongst these kids that ultimately caused them to, to retaliate in the worst of ways. And so wish I wish I had more insight into the, the larger cultural or systemic problem. Um, but I'd say that 
as a as a young man in particular, um, it, it can feel really lonely. Like, sure, you might have you might have buds, you might have sports to play, you might have uh, common interests with some friends, but there's not always a strong sense of um, mentorship from above. You know, I was thinking about just the other day the 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 rites of passage that a number of other um, cultures will will induct their their youth into you know in, in a Native American culture, for example, where the young men um, will ingest peyote or mescaline or um, some some plant medicine and be kind of sent off onto a a spirit quest of sorts and and then be very much supported by the the tribe upon their return or during that ceremony and there's this really distinct initiation into manhood and they and they understand learn from and model um, all the the wisdom and teaching that comes from their elders men or men or women whereas just growing up in the united states while we may still have uh, positive influences in the form of our parents teachers coaches etc there's never like this distinct rite of passage where where you say now i am a man now now i am responsible now i know my mission we're we're kind of chasing these uh these false metrics of hey like you become a man when you first get laid you know as a teenager or beyond or when you you prove yourself by by kicking someone's ass in a fight so i think not only did we did we not have this really distinct sense of of ritual and um comeuppance but also we in the in the dawn of the internet we tended to um just be consuming a lot of messages from from people outside of us um, and outside of our, our immediate community and just trying to model that because that's all we knew how to do. And so unfortunately, you know, modeling, modeling pop culture is not always the best uh, means to set somebody on the, on the right path and to instill the, the best virtues of, of love and care and responsibility and community. And so we kind of modeled a lot of the, the garbage that we saw on television. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I think a lot of the conversation now about it and, you know, obviously I, like, I don't want to get into the conversation around guns cause that seems to be a largely like mood point <laughs> within the dialogue in in this area. And, and we can have our opinions and beliefs, but you know, there's a lot of political sort of component to that. I'm, I'm curious to, to what you're talking about, which I think is a very interesting um, part of it that, that we need to be talking more about is what's happening for young men in our education system, you know, in junior high, in high school, that, that is causing, uh, this sort of causing this mentality that we can move towards this as an option when we are in pain, when we are suffering, when we're, when we're hurting. And so, from your perspective and what you've seen happening over the last couple of decades and what you saw happening in your school, what are some of the contributing factors to that? I know you mentioned like this, this concept of like the hierarchy within high school. Like what are some of the other things? Like what does bullying look like that, that you think that is contributing to this? And because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people, when they see these instances happening, it's, it's easy to separate themselves. It's easy to separate ourselves from what it's like within those institutions, within those environments that's causing young men to go to this place. And, and then I think the, like, the last part of the question, I know I'm asking a few things here is like, and this is sort of a, a loaded question 
Uh, so, you know, feel free to answer it however you feel. It's like, do you, how do you feel if at all masculinity plays into this, into this equation? Because it's, it's largely, you know, Caucasian young men that are walking in and doing these things. It's not women. It's, it's generally not um, people of color. And so like, how, how does all this play into what's, what's happening? I know that's a much larger question, but I'd, I'd be really interested in hearing your insight on that. Yeah. Um, certainly. And I, know, and I know, I know it's loaded. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack, you know, at the root of it. Um, and I think one of these underlying questions that, that every human wrestles with at some level, um, consciously or unconsciously is, is, am I loved? Um, do, do others approve of me? Do I belong? Like these, these fundamental questions of acceptance in, in a, in a social, in a social circle. And if those needs are met, um, and we feel that, yes, we are loved, we, we belong, we're important, we're celebrated, we add value to, to our circle, to our tribe, to our community, then that sets someone up for, for greater success and a desire to continue being a contribution um, and to, you know, like extol the virtues of, of compassion and, and service. And if those questions are met with a response of, no, actually, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. You're, you know, you, you actually have no worth in this particular arena. Um, that, that's an extremely lonely feeling that that leads to one of um depression and and isolation and i think looking at the culture like the way that um the united states continues to move is that going back to this idea of like um rites of passage and tribes is that i think many people don't and young men don't know where they belong so again they're modeling their behavior after what they what they think um a man should look like and like a man a man like conquers women and a man doesn't have needs and a man like, you know, is stoic and strong and kicks ass when he needs to, but without having um, a, a strong circle around, around themselves to act, to actually lean on when they say, you know what, like I'm, I'm going through a really hard time or this girl broke my heart or I'm really scared. Um, we're te we tend to internalize, um, squash and swallow a lot of this this trouble that we face and actually as, as Traver Bohm said um, what gets repressed uh, ends up getting expressed sideways so all these you know anytime we say no it's fine I got this I don't need you whatnot any anytime we're kind of stuffing all this stuff into the emotional junk drawer um, it ends up manifesting and expressing itself in in like unwholesome ways outward and that could be anything from you know like pornography to substance abuse to like deviant behavior to to breaking the law and so uh, admittedly I think that's a big a big aspect of being a uh, a young adult or a young man growing up in the United States is a real feeling of loneliness and even with social media, that's still a metric by with by which you're comparing your self worth and saying, "Oh, great, you know, it's cool that I got a couple comments on my last post, but it still doesn't compare to to Jake. He's got forty thousand followers. Like that guy's worth something, and I've I've got forty. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting, different, it's almost like a different subset of challenges that I think teenage men, uh, teenage boys and girls are going through today. And uh, I'm curious from your perspective of, you know, what, because one of the biggest things that I hear all the time when I go do public speaking and I talk about men and talk about masculinity, I have so many parents asking me questions of like, how do we help our young men? How do we help the young men of, of this generation, you know, that are in junior high, they're in high school and, and how do we start to support them? And I think from someone that's, you know, been in your position and gone through the experiences that you've gone through, you know, what, what do you say to those parents that are looking for advice and guidance on how to sort of support the young men of the generation that are in these schools where, you know, the, the, the threat of a mass shootings are, are happening. Like, you know, I think a lot of schools have these drills now where they're, where they're having to go through uh, sort of like a simulation of what will happen, how they evacuate the school if a mass shooting happens. Like, I mean, I definitely didn't go through that as a kid. I don't, I don't know if you did, um, but it's, you know, there are huge, huge challenges that, that we just didn't have to deal with that have popped up. And so what do you say to parents that of, of of kids that are in these types of schools where this is very prominent. Yeah, I mean, first to the to the parents who <clears throat> who have, you know, young boys or men in junior high or high school, I'd say first to look inward and to to really get responsible for for their communication. And I say that um, coming from a place of of recognizing how much our mentors have like how much their their words have an impact on us so things that may seem unconscious or may may be passed down generally generationally such as like toughen up or come on like boys don't cry or like be a man things like that that a father may say totally unconsciously to his son like after he, he you know gets hit in the gut at football practice and is kind of tearing up a, a word you know a, a statement like that like come on son man up you've got this that can start to create kind of a complex for that for that young man and go oh shit you know according to what dad says men don't cry and parents may not even realize that they um in some ways can be the source or the the perpetuators of of these ideas and reinforcing this identity of of how their young men should grow up to be um mm. So that's, you know, I'd say that's one big part of it is just really um, being conscious of the ways in which parents communicate to, to their children and starting to take inventory of the, the language that may, un, may unknowingly be um, causing some, some harm to those young ones as they, as they form ideas about who they are and who they should be for the world. Yeah, I think, I think that's powerful, man. And, you know, I think it's an important piece to be able to start to question some of the contributing narratives that we as parents are perpetuating for our kids. And I think there's a lot of that happening right now. And and it's interesting because there's also like the revolt to, you know, the quote unquote PC culture and how that's impacting us and needing safe spaces. And, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's so many different sides to this conversation and this, and this spectrum that I think are, are important, but I love what you're saying there around having us really start to question our own narratives. What would you say to yourself, you know, if you could kind of go back to before the events and after the event, like, what would you say to your younger self about 
how to interact with the kids in your school and, and how to have dealt with something like that? Um, Lots it, of really simple questions this yeah, morning. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate it. You know, I think, so I, I've always been an empath um, and who said otherwise, like I just, I just have always felt deeply for other people. I've been really sensitive to their, to their needs, their, their pain, et cetera. And I mean, as an example, as a, as a little kid, I used to feel sorry for the ice cream man because he had to drive around by himself all day. <laughs> That's why it's, been, it's been like, you know, in my genes since, since I came out of the womb. But what I am pointing to is that in the, in the wake of the shooting, not only was, did I experience the same devastation that everyone else did of having lost a teacher students and classmates that were that were near and dear to, to thousands of others in the community, I felt a really great sense of pain for not only the parents of the shooters, but the shooters themselves. And that mm-hmm. seemed like a really controversial stance at the time where, you know, people had erected all of these, these crosses on a hillside. And at the time, the maker of these these cross crosses commemorating all the dead had actually put up 15 crosses, which included the two gunmen and people angrily tore those down and say, they, these guys don't deserve to be commemorated in any way. Mm-hmm. And in spite of all that and the amount of pain uh, and destruction that they caused, I couldn't help but feel a, a great sense of sadness for how lonely they were for what ultimately drove them to that. Now, whether mental illness played a role in that or not is, you know, may remain um, speculative, but I was really left with a sense of like how sad it felt to be part of a culture that, that fostered this sense of, of you don't belong here and you're, you are worth nothing to us. You know, where they were, they were left feeling so, so isolated and, um, removed from any sense of worthiness that their last response was to burn it all down. And so, mm. you know, going back to, to my, to my younger self, my, my response after the fact, and had I, you know, could I ever give myself these words of wisdom prior to was just to practice that compassion because it was a lot easier, particularly as a, as a young developing adult to, to make fast judgments about who someone was or to make fun of their music choice or choice of dress, et cetera. But I'm, I'm very clear that um, it's, it's so important to practice compassion for other people because we just have no idea what, what battles they're fighting behind the scenes. And I still carry that with me today. You know, even when some jerk off cuts me off in traffic and my, my primal response is to want to honk the horn and throw my fist out the window and then I'll, I'll kind of entertain this exercise where I say, what if, what if this guy is actually not road raging at all? What if he's racing to the hospital this moment to try to spend the last you know, few moments with his, his dying mother because he just got news? Like, I, I, I try never to jump to fast conclusions um, or to judge someone for their behavior until I first lean in and ask questions and get a little bit more curious about what it looks like on their side of the fence so that um you know that that sense of empathy and compassion i think is what has has made a big difference with the quality of my relationships over the years yeah i mean that's so powerful man you know it's 
<laughs> I remember speaking at an event and we were talking about, you know, there's a, there's a few hundred people there and someone was asking a question about dealing with, you know, dealing with quote unquote assholes. And I can't remember what my response was, but after I was done, it's almost like they, you know, they didn't, they weren't really open to hearing what I had to say. And their response was something along the lines of like, yeah, it's, well, some people are just assholes though. Right. And it's like, yes and no, like, yes, some people are just assholes, but some people like even assholes have been created, right? Like we don't come out of the womb as assholes. That's just not the way that it works, right? Like we, and, and I guess, you know, this is sort of like the debate of original sin. And if we come out, you know, as horrible people and yada, 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 but, but we know that neurologically we don't come out, we're not born as horrible human beings. We, we grow up and all the data and the research in the world, not maybe all of it, but most of it points towards our environment being one of the largest contributing factors, right? Into creating who we are. And I think a lot of the pieces that you've talked about, this isolation, this loneliness, the lack of community, you know, the the narratives that, uh, you know, a lot of these young men are, are fed growing up, the, the, the bullying, you know, the, the want and the need to retaliate, you know, that's a very strong piece. When you're isolated, when a, when a group of people isolate you, it, there's a very real need to retaliate. It's, it's embedded within our psyche. And that can build and build and build and build. And, you know, I think we see a lot of examples of that in our current culture and climate. And, you know, so I, I just really appreciate you diving into this topic with me because I think it's something that we need to dialogue more about, you know, and we need to dialogue about it in a way that is, that is, you know, from the heart, but also logical, that we need to not remove emotions from this conversation, but we also can't remove logic and critical thinking and analysis when it comes to these types of of conversations. And so I, I appreciate you just having the willingness to dive into some of these pieces. Um, yeah. You know, I, I kind of want to go into a little bit more on trauma, but I just want to give you a chance to say, you know, anything else you have to say on this topic. Yeah, thank you. You know, what comes to mind when I when I think about this, um, and I, as a challenge to listeners or the the person who says, you know what, some people are just assholes, I would challenge them in in saying that leaving it leaving a statement like that gets you off the hook for any sense of responsibility. You know, because mm. coming back to this idea of isolation, so long as we just write people off as you know what, the guy's a dickhead, can't can't help him, can't fix him, good riddance. If we're just as a culture willing to push people off the cliff um, and say, like, let's continue to push them to the fringes because they're clearly not going to get any better, then we're actually abdicating all responsibility for for making a change, for improving the collective. And it actually requires a lot less energy to simply um, reinforce and enroll yourself in a story that that person sucks, sorry, can't help them. What actually does take more energy and growth on the part of the, the the one who judges is to be willing to say, "Man, that guy like he he really snapped at you know at the the restaurant waiter." And instead of saying like, "What a jerk that guy is," to actually wonder like, "What kind of bad news did that guy just get this morning? What kind of financial stress is he undergoing? Like, what where did that come from?" Because we're all we're all just walking around wounded and expressing, you know, the, 
the, the pain of our wounds in those different forms. And it's often projected onto others. So like an example was, um, just, it may have been a year ago. Um, we just said, we just hit the 20 year anniversary of the Columbine high school shooting. And it may have been just a, either the same year or the year prior where there was a big, um, a big march in Denver rallying for gun control. And I went and attended that. I'm not often a, a political activist, but just wanted to stand in solidarity with a lot of these other, um, survivors of the Columbine shooting. And in the midst of this huge uh, Civic Center Park, where there's tens of thousands of people and they're all chanting and most of the same message, I actually noticed about four or five guys um, with with signs that didn't look like anyone else's. They actually had um, like NRA hats and maybe a couple of MAGA hats and, and, and posters to the extent of, you know, like guns are our rights. And while what was what was troubling about that was not that those individuals were there, but that these other people who were out there, you know, marching for peace were were pretty um, vicious in their verbal attacks of these guys and saying, like, go home and you don't belong here and whatnot. And I I chose to to walk up to and have a conversation with these gentlemen. You know, they looked pretty like rough and tumble, but I didn't go up there with the intent of confrontation and saying, like, what the hell are you guys doing here? Like you know, are you trying to pick a fight? I just said, Hey guys, my name's Andrew. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm curious. I'd like to learn a little bit more about kind of what your signs mean and what, where you're coming from. Uh, you know, I explained that I was a student that had survived Columbine. They expressed their sincere condolences. Like they were just as impacted as, as anyone. Um, but we engaged in like a really, a really healthy, connected and productive conversation about their beliefs in their right to bear arms and how arguably they could help to protect others in a, in a less dissimilar situation happen. And it was just, that was just one example of a way in which some individuals that the, the larger society um, or tribe in that space perceived as a thorn in their side, they just wanted to, you know, kick them out or burn them at the stake. It actually made a big difference to instead engage in dialogue with them and get into their world. And that's, that's something that a lot of humans are not um, willing to do because it takes a lot. It it can be really uncomfortable and it takes courage. And it also implies a, a willingness to rework our own beliefs about humans and about life and to be curious instead of to be so deeply entrenched in our view of how the world works. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, what it sounds like what you're saying is, is so powerful. And I love the example. and I love that you, you know, went and had a dialogue with them. And I think the word that stood out to me there as you were speaking is curiosity. And, you know, I think that we have largely, you know, for many, many, many reasons, I could state my own opinions here, but it seems like when it comes to these types of charged situations or moments or issues that are that we're facing in our culture that we lack curiosity and we and we stop uh actually executing conversations with curiosity and we sort of root into our own belief and opinion and then project those out into the world rather than having an open dialogue to try and understand how we might engage in in some critical discourse to to actually find common ground to make some make some potential shifts because without that you know it just sort seems to like put us on both sides of the fence and it's almost seems to like reinforce the the real issue like you were talking about hierarchy and not feeling like you have a place 
in the very beginning from you know some of these some of the guys that were like the the the, the boys that were gunmen uh, in Columbine, and, and you're sort of addressing some of the stuff that you've seen, and and yet that's how we deal with a lot of these situations, you know, when and even the situation that you described there with the guys that that are holding the the, the signs sort of in, in protest of what the other thing, uh, you know, what everyone was out there for. And we sort of deal with it in the same way. So I love that you're bringing up curiosity and an openness and a willingness to go and have those conversations because I do think that they are important. And it's not necessarily, from my understanding of what you're saying, it's not necessarily about the having the intention of like trying to win them over rather than having a discourse with them so that so that there is uh, more common ground between the extreme polarities. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a, a, a documentary, I believe I could be misquoting this, um, called Uncommon Courtesy or something to that, to that effect, where um, uh, a gentleman, a black musician, ended up going around and, and having a lot of conversations with um, Ku Klux Klan members and not with the intent of trying to, to argue or win them over in conversation, but he would, he would actually invite them to coffee at at his home or at, at theirs and engage in a lot of dialogue with these guys in which he simply asked like tell me more about what you know what it's like to be in this brotherhood and why you believe what you do and where you grew up and did african americans pose a threat etc and he would simply ask a ton of questions and there was an astounding number of um, instances in which these you know grand dragons and other high-ranking ku klux klan members chose of their own volition to actually turn in their robes. Uh, it may have been accidental courtesy. That could be the name of the film. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's something that I continue to espouse a lot is forgo your certainty for curiosity, because it's mm -hmm. a lot, it's a lot easier whether you're talking religion, politics, or any other polarizing topic to, to remain heels dug in further reinforcing your own beliefs, surrounding yourself by those of like mind and just shouting in echo chambers, you know, everybody's um, just reinforcing the the chants of those around them so loudly that they drown out any any sense of opposition or just contrary opinion. And so, for me, when it while I might still feel an emotional charge around a number of these polarizing topics in the United States right now in lieu of just saying it's blue versus red, it's us versus them, it's you know. Uh, this particular way, uh, I will actually ask someone, like, tell me a little bit more about, like, why you feel it's important to to carry a gun at your side. Like, did you grow up in a dangerous neighborhood, or have you been personally impacted by um, immigrants coming across the border illegally and taking your jobs? Like, I'd actually like to know a little bit more about um, why you have this particular stance. That you know, and I'll challenge people and say you can't, you can't just. Um, rehash uh, a story from Fox News, like, tell me about your personal life. <laughs> I'll actually hold people to that standard and say, I actually don't care what your local news station says. I'd, I'd like to know personally, um, at a level of your values, why this impacts you and why, you know, why you hold this particular belief. And what's is born out of that is a, a willingness to sometimes rework my own beliefs and say, wow, I actually really had formerly stood firmly in this corner. And now um, I, I may be shifting my opinion a little bit. So 
while some people try to further reinforce their identity and just gather evidence to support that, I support this idea that I reserve the right to change my mind when presented with new evidence. Mm. You know, yeah, like, I really well, appreciate that. Yeah, politicians always get, you know, um, lambasted for for flip flopping and say, "Oh, like Senator so and so, you say that you really stand for this, but we found this video clip seven years ago where you were advocating otherwise." You know, as, it, as in this like gotcha moment, or like this person has no integrity. Truth is, I think we all reserve the right to change our minds when we suddenly discover something outside of our you know, limited realm of consciousness when we actually take the time to listen to somebody who shares a perspective that illuminates new information. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, I think that's, I think that's a really, you know, powerful statement and sentiment. And, you know, I think just in, in the effort of time, as much as I would love to, you know, dive into this in really long form, because I think that there's so much more that we're missing out on in this conversation. I'm gonna have to have you back on the show um, you know, depending on what the listeners would like to hear more about from this episode and, you know, from your experience and some of the other questions um, that that they might have. I think where I'd like to end off, um, you know, I know we didn't get into the meditative practice and, uh, you know, some of the lucid dreaming that you've used in, in order to, to, you know, deepen your healing journey and, and how that's benefited you. We'll have to talk about that in a later time. Um, I would, I would just love to get your perspective on, you know, how your view of masculinity, how your view of be, you know, being a man has changed over the years and, you know, through this experience and, and, you know, through your healing journey and into your adult years and, and, and how that shifted and changed if at all. Yeah. Man, you keep keep lobbing the softball question. <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're like next time maybe you should send these to me in advance because these are big questions. <laughs> I, I I appreciate the uh, the the mental exercise. For me personally, uh, if I were to de describe it in the uh, using the hero's journey as an example, uh, typically at the start of the journey, the, the protagonist is kind of a small character operating in a regular life. And when called to adventure, first refuses that call before going into this series of adventures and facing foes and eventually confronting themselves in, in the dragon slayer and then coming back uh, victorious out the other side and, and returning to community bearing gifts. I share this because for me, the way that I've shifted as a man is, is going from a place of a feeling small as, as a younger man and having a, a somewhat egocentric and self-interested relationship with the world, where I was always seeing what I could get for myself, how I could fill my cup, what I could do to boost my own personal self-esteem without feeling much sense of responsibility to others. And the calling for me over recent years has actually been to rise up into a greater level of leadership and responsibility to my community. And I resisted the hell out of it at first. You know, I thought like, I, I'm not the one and I'm just going to go chase the next adventure over the horizon. And it was really uh, an individual pursuit. But what I have come to know as this new expression of manhood for me is the, the courage and the willingness to be responsible for a lot of other people not just to look out for my own, not just to ensure that that I'm fed and that my ego is nourished, but to be 
in communication, to be courageous, to be vulnerable, to be compassionate, and to actually be responsible for a lot of other people in my care, whether they be my employees, my yoga students, my family, or just, you know, people on this planet. That that for me has been the journey is um, confronting myself, recognizing myself, and then understanding um, and honoring this sense of duty to take care of a lot of other people. And that to me feels like powerful manhood. Yeah. Awesome, brother. Awesome. I love it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much for, for being a part of this and and for sharing your story and and just for having done the work. You know, I just want to recognize you for having done the work to heal through something like that and to have such an open mind and perspective to to be able to challenge some of these narratives and to be able to, you know, help other people see what an example is like of someone who has been through something so traumatic and has come out the other side stronger, you know, I I wouldn't say better, but maybe that's it. Maybe that's how your experience is, but, you know, stronger and, you know, well-rounded and really using their voice to support others to heal through that, that process, whatever their trauma might be, whatever their experience might be. So I appreciate you. Thank you, man. It's uh, it's, it's been an, an honor to spend the time with you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't wish you a, a happy belated 35th. Uh, appreciate <laughs> the you. impact you're having out in the world. Thanks, man. So um, yeah, so thanks so much for joining me. We'll definitely have to have you back on the show. Uh, one last question, where can people find you? Where do you want people to go and check you out? Yeah, so I, I do uh, pop in from time to time on the gram for you young ones. Uh, uh, the Andrew Fraser. It's uh, F R A S E R, uh, and I've also got a website called fearfocusfreedom.com and a podcast by the same name. Um, so I interview a lot of other movers, shakers, and change makers, people who are um, called by like a pretty ambitious pursuits, whether artistic, entrepreneurial, or otherwise, and who are afraid of that same pursuit and kind of unpack uh, their journey and what it took to get them to, to leap off of the proverbial edge to go out there and have a big impact. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, definitely go check out uh, Andrew's work. And uh, don't forget to share this podcast episode with a few people that you think might enjoy. It goes a long way to getting the word out there. Uh, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. Uh, we've been getting some comments from people that Google Play is not updating. Uh, from what I have been informed, uh, Google Play will be phasing out its podcast wings. So um, make sure that you are subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify because we are live and large on all of those platforms. Uh, don't forget to leave us a rating review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.